0: (laughs) All right, here we go. I don't have the clicker. Oh, oh, I do have the clicker. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Okay. All right. Now I want to do something with you. All right. Can you put that spot over here? All right. I'm going to ask you to tell me a word that comes to mind when you think of Paul. But here's, here's the rules, okay? You cannot tell me the Christianese answer. You cannot tell me the answer that you're supposed to give because you know better and because he's supposed to be and everything else. What I want you to do is I want you to tell me that sort of human reaction that you have to him when you read his letters and do this kind of thing. And and let me just make it clear what I'm talking about. Uh, You know, uh, in ways that I'm going to talk about in a second, I am so thankful for Paul, it's ridiculous. Okay, I think he is absolutely the key fundamental personage actually in the New Testament besides Christ to make us understand something, much more so than the gospel writers or the apostles or anybody else. Paul's the guy. I absolutely love Paul for that. But let me make it clear. While I would love to hang out with Paul over, say, lunch or have him teach me something, Paul is not the guy that after I've gotten done with, Paul preached so long one time that a kid fell asleep, fell out of a window, and died. Okay? You think I preach long, okay? So so bottom line, I just want to tell you, all right? Paul, right? And the point is, is when I think about after having listened to Paul for 18 hours straight or whatever it is, I, Paul is not the guy that I ever think of. He's not in my top 10 list. He's not even in my top 20 list of the people that I would want to just get together with and hang. When I'm going to downtime, the person that I would laugh with, you just laughed. Your your back deck in your house is one of my favorite places to go if I want to just relax, You know what I mean? I just wanna be with somebody, I wanna laugh, I just wanna hang. There's people in this congregation I love to just do that with. There's more that I would love to, but I don't have time. But the bottom line is, okay, Paul is not the hang guy. In fact, when I think of Paul, I think of something like this. I think of, here, by the way, you will not be able to read most of what I said, most of what I write here. So I think of, uh, Doc. if if I'm gonna spell this wrong, give me grace, okay? I think of him as being doctrinaire, and what I mean by that is is, is, he's about doctrine. Now, he loves people. Don't misunderstand him. I know that he loves people. But he really is doctrine first, right? Doctrine's got to be right, and then people can be right. So he's doctrinaire, meaning he places doctrine above people, which is what makes him not necessarily a good hang guy. This is how I think of him, okay? I think of him as being harsh. We're going to read some things today. Do you remember that there's a place where Paul actually says this to the Jewish believers that are trying to take people away? He says, I wish, they, they're talking about circumcision, and he says, I wish these guys would be, sorry, but castrated for what they're doing. This is not friendly, okay? I think of him as being harsh. I also think of him as being incredibly strong, right, I mean, this is a guy, I picture that if Paul walked through those doors right there, that a hush would fall over the room. Even I would be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit that I would shut up. And that a hush would fall over the room. And that the next words that came out of Paul's mouth would be that just dripping with the Holy Spirit and the anointing of God that would change everybody in a moment. Right? I think of him as being strong. Right? Now just give me, in this vein, give me other words. Stubborn, I love that. Okay, stubborn. I, all right, I'm gonna go with it. Go ahead, give me another one. I love that. That's right, intense. Uh, just a like second, intense. I'm not if I if I write well, I write slow. Brutal, can I just leave it at that? <laughs> Brutal, honest. Go ahead, what. Type A, definitely type A, right? Type A, good Samaritan? Yeah, all right. But I'm not gonna spell all that, so good S, okay? What's that, extreme? I like that, all right, go ahead. Overwhelming. Oh, thank you. Okay. Overwhelming. There was something else. What was, that? what was that one that was before that? Well, there was one right before that. I, th- I thought scholarly. Anyway, you get the idea, okay? And so there's more that we could put. But there's if we were to do like a word picture like Eric did, you know what I mean, and everybody were to give their things, you see what words would sort of come out big, right? And, and, and let's, let's be clear again. Now watch. This is so important. I am of the opinion, and I think I can defend it, that if we didn't have Paul, we wouldn't have systematic theology. We wouldn't understand God and his doctrines and who he is in any way. We certainly, I don't believe, would have ever made the connection. Certainly none of the apostles and nobody else was. Nobody was making the connection between the Old Testament and the New. Paul is the one that did that. Paul is the one that showed us that it's not about the law. It's not about living up to some requirements. Those requirements were put in place to show us that we couldn't live up to them. That's Paul that that gives that insight. And that's Paul. I'm not saying they can't be drawn out of the Scriptures. I'm just saying... Paul is the one that God used to put these things together. And when we talk about Christian doctrine, when we talk about systematic theology, when we talk about anything having to do with the intellect, the head, the organizational principles, go ahead and hit that one light if you would. Uh, when we talk about any of those kinds of things, we owe that in large measure to Paul. Certainly, it comes out of other writers and we pick it up and so on, but Paul's the guy that lays it out in a way where intellectually it makes sense, it's coherent, and it's systematic and so on. Got it? Now, here's the problem with that is Christianity about doctrine? Is it about theology? Well, be, I'm asking the question, and it assumes a no. But yes, it is. It is about doctrine, and it is about theology. Absolutely, don't, don't, don't for one second think that I don't think that those things are critical. In fact, when you think of me, my namesake is Paul. P. Curtis Brunk is my name. That's how I sign it. And it's Paul. And I don't know why they called me by Kurt. I don't ever do that to your children. It's horrible. Okay? <laughs> Every time you call anybody up, what's your name? Kurt. Well, that's not your name on here. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, but, but, but the point is, is I love doctrine. I literally read systematic theologies as a hobby. That's like fun reading for me, okay? That's nuts, okay? But that's how I am, that's who I am. But I do want to say something. I didn't come to Christ because it was a great theology and I didn't come to Christ because it was systematic and coherent. I came to Christ because one day he revealed himself to me and I fell in love with him. It's the love that's the foundation. If the theology isn't there, it goes bad. We all get that. But that's not the foundation. The foundation is is that God wants to what? Hang with me. What's the garden? It's hanging with you. He should be on your top ten list. I love every morning going out and hanging with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father in my prayer time, right? So there is something that's deeper than these things that Paul brings, except what if we actually have totally misunderstood Paul? What if the Paul of the letters is different than the Paul that is Paul? What if there's a huge difference between these things? In fact, what if God was actually doing something specific with the difference between Paul of the letters and Paul that is really Paul? And that he means us to see it because it'll teach us something absolutely critical to what he's asking of us. What he's looking for, who he wants us to be and how he wants us to do things. That's where we're going today. I'm telling you, this is a a little bit of hang on to your hats, okay? There's an incredible thing in here. It's going to take us a little while to dig into. Oh, this is perfect. Mario Vallada is our prayer. Oh, man, thank you for your responses to his missions thing last week, and if you don't know about it, he's doing a missions thing, and give me an email, and I'll send it to him, and, and we're setting up a lunch to be had here pretty quick, and so on, so, but Mari, would you please lift up uh, the sermon, but also lift up another church, would you? Sure. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Heavenly Father, we are just thrilled to be here today, Lord God, and um, Lord, we are always so, uh, encouraged by the message that, um, you bring to us through your vessel, Kurt. And, uh, Lord, we are thankful for, you know, his commitment to his prayer walk, to his time with you, and to his time of hearing your voice, and what you want this congregation to hear. Um, we are just very thankful for that, Father God, and- Lord, uh, today I'd like to lift up Victory Church in Cebu, Philippines. Amen. And I just pray your Holy Spirit would be over that, that church and minister to, to that congregation as well. In Jesus' name. In
0: Jesus' name. And that, of course, is Christina's ministry is sitting right there with him, so that's really cool. All right, so most of you know that this summer we are doing soaps, and we're calling it Summer of Soap. And so that's the really cool thing that Adelbonski built for us. And soap, for those of you who don't know, please go and listen to the introduction from last week because that's where I explained it in detail and what we're doing. The very, very brief overview is soap is a way of reading scripture that causes it to become interactive, intimate to you. God speaking to you. And it just simply means read your scripture. When you get to a certain place, when God does a speed bump in you, you observe what that's about. You talk to God about it, and then you, once you get a revelation, then you apply that to your life. How does this apply to me? And then you pray and seal that. So that's what SOAP is. You can get it on our app, you can get it on our website, you can get a hard copy back on the resource table. You can get it anywhere all the time. All right, so, but the key to SOAP is, and what we're doing, all the speakers for the rest of the summer will be reading the Old Testament and New Testament soaps for the week before the sermon, and then they'll be picking a scripture out of that. Eric Lee's going to be doing one of them, and he'll be picking it out. We're hoping that you will be reading your soaps and saying, what would I do? What sermon would I give from this? And again, to just try and pick up the interactivity of it and so on, okay? So the bottom line, though, when you're doing a soap is you're looking for the speed bump, okay? What's the thing that just sort of you don't understand? Why did you say it this way? wow, that catches my attention, whatever it is, something stops you and causes you to have to slow your roll and talk to God about it, okay? All right, now, this is the one that got me. Um, I see something happening here. Are you reloading it? It crashed, okay. Thank you very much. Are we, are we good? Do you want me to try it? Just go, just skip over the two. Yeah, there you go. And then we'll work on that this week. Okay, here's the one that I got. For it is said about Paul, and Paul's writing this. For it is said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking is despicable. Doesn't that stand out? Doesn't that just, doesn't that, what do you mean his physical presence is weak? Didn't you read that stuff about cutting things off? Didn't you read that, you know, Come on, Paul weak, physically presence weak? And his speaking despicable? This is really, really well outside the bounds of my image of who Paul is. Now, I want to say something. He is saying something that is a critique that's being made about him, and he's setting it up. So it's a little less than, but it's still, and here's the point, this is actually true. The things take root because there's truth in them. Not be- if you say something about somebody that's completely false, how does it work? Everybody goes, that's not the person. You got it wrong. But if you say something about somebody and it has truth in it, it sticks. Now watch the mitigating factor, okay? Watch this. See, this is Paul's first missionary journey, and you see the red arrows coming from over here on the right, and then the red arrows go, and then he gets a vision to go over, not to Asia, but over to Europe, and so they go across the water, and this is the first time the gospel's gone over into the Western world, we call it, and he comes down the way, and then he gets all the way down to the bottom there, and then you see Athens. Do you see that at the bottom sort of left of those red arrows? Athens down there. And then right next to that is Corinth. And you remember at Athens, you remember what he did at Athens? He went and he spoke at Mars Hill, which was a complex that was where people from all over the world would come to discuss the most weighty wisdom things. Do you remember, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle all called Athens home. The reason why there is Mars Hill in Athens is because of philosophers like that who have held audience... And talk to people about wisdom and philosophy and so on in ways that are still to this day incredibly insightful. Okay? So here's the point. Paul goes to Athens, he says things, the, the wise people there say, come back again and talk to us about this. And Paul re- recognizes this isn't a place where the power of the gospel is going to be able to penetrate the wisdom, the, the sort of the sort of people that these were. They loved to sit around and argue about these things all day long, and it wasn't going to penetrate. So he just leaves. He doesn't wait around for another invitation. He just leaves. And he goes to Corinth, wherein he starts a church. And so there's this church that starts in Corinth, and people get saved. But now watch. This is much like our day. We think that the ancients are very different than we are. They're not. Okay? They are very much the same. And the point is, is when he gets to Corinth, now he's been there, and by the time he writes 2 Corinthians, He's already taken at least one, probably two journeys there. He's already spent a lot of time there. There's a vibrant church there and everything else. But what's happening is, is that Paul is falling out of favor with the Corinthian Christians. Why? Because there's this professional class of people that come from places like Athens who are being trained in something that Aristotle is the one that coined it. And it still used to be a subject in universities. It's not so much anymore. But it's called rhetoric. And rhetoric is essentially this, persuasive speaking. It doesn't mean like debate in in a modern institution is are my arguments better than your arguments? That is not persuasive. In fact, usually when somebody's trying to tell you that arguments are better than yours, it's just annoying. So it doesn't persuade. Rhetoric is how to persuade, and it has to do with your use of humor, your use of vulnerability, your use of transparency. It even has to do with your physical look, how you speak, the the cadence in the way you speak. There's 85% of communication is nonverbal. And to be communicative, certain people have what we call high Q factors. We really like them. When we look at them, you can the way that you get that is from the news. And what they do is they put a newscaster in a thing and they turn the sound down. And they just ask people, do you like them when they're talking? And if they got a high Q factor, people say yes. And then they turn on the volume and they see what it does to their Q factor. Does it drop when people start talking or does it stay high? And the people that we really like, celebrities, great newscasters, and so on, these are people that have very, very high Q factors. We just like them, right? And now that has to do with rhetoric. There's people that will study that and say, why do you like that person and not this person? Why does that person annoy you and this person attracts you and influences you? Got it? So what they have is a professional class of rhetoricians, speakers, who go out... And they actually make their living speaking. They go into places and they talk about ideas in ways that people give them money and they make their living doing that. Now these people that Paul's talking about have become Christians and what they're doing in Corinth is they're starting to preach and because of that the people like the way that they talk. They like what they have to say. They like their insights and they give them money and so on and there has been both inadvertent but also vertent intentional there has been an undermining by these people about paul to the point that it would get to where people could say about paul his presence is weak and when you're with him physically his letters wow they're great but when he shows up he's like what what is he you know really short or fat or what is it about him meek There's something about him that isn't impressive, and he's not forceful like he is in his letters. Plus, he just doesn't speak like these trained rhetoricians do. He's not that. Now, Paul says about those people, they're super apostles, and he means that sarcastically, so sarcasm is a good one, okay? I'm an apostle. These people are super apostles according to you. They're somehow being better than me, okay? And they're being more influential in your lives. That's where the problem comes. Paul doesn't care about it on an ego level. He cares about it on what it's doing to the people that are being swayed by what they're saying. And, and this is what we're really going after, what it's playing on in those people's human nature that's going to cause them to actually shipwreck in their faith. So watch this. Here's what he said, it is said. See, he's not saying that it's true but as we just said a second ago, there's truth in it. So he's saying, people say this about me. And again, we can say there's reason to say that. Maybe it's not as strong as what they're saying, but there is reason, okay? Now, so he goes on and he says this. Now this is, this is the Paul that we know, okay? This is Paul at his acid best, okay? Watch him. This is other soaps throughout the week. Oh, don't worry, we wouldn't dare say that we're as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. But they are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as a standard of measurement. How ignorant. Now that's, that's the least sophisticated Paul gets. By the way, last night I just flipped on Roseanne. Uh, you remember Steve Martin, was it, was, was it called Roseanne? Roxanne, Roxanne, there you go. And it was Roxanne and it's Steve Martin, he's got the big nose. And the guy says, big nose, and he says, really? And then he has to come up with 20 better insults about his nose than the guy came up with. Did, does anybody know it? It's a hilarious scene, okay? This is Paul. This is where he starts with the obvious, that they're being ignorant. But he's going to get more and more sophisticated in his, in his attack, his acid attack, okay? I don't consider myself inferior in any way to these super apostles who teach such things. I will continue doing what I have always done. This will undercut those who are looking for an opportunity to boast that their work is just like ours. These people are false prophets. They're deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised. Now watch this. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So, you know, okay, now we know how he feels about those guys. But then he goes really subtle and not, he just this, this is just great stuff right here. Again, I say, don't think that I'm a fool to talk like this. But even if you do, listen to me as you would to a foolish person. While I also, like they've been boasting, I also boast a little. Such boasting is not from the Lord, but I'm acting like a fool. And since others boast about their human achievements, I will too. After all, now listen to what he's saying to the Corinthians, who are getting swayed by these guys. You think you're so wise, but you enjoy putting up with fools. You put up with it when somebody enslaves you, takes everything you have, takes advantage of you, takes control of everything, and slaps you in the face. I'm ashamed to say I've been too weak to do that. (laughs) Now, there's more. You you who are doing the soaps know that these whole chapters right here is just Paul going to incredible depths to point out things and to to just bring a, a mirror to what's happening. But I wanna take a minute here, and I wanna talk to you about how this is applying to us now, because this isn't just something that happened back then, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a couple of obvious examples first, and then I'm gonna go a place I don't wanna go. Can you help me with that? I'm just gonna get distracted a little bit, thank you. All right, now watch. You can, you can make an easy critique of something like, say, faith doctrine. Here's what faith doctrine is. Faith doctrine is, it starts in a really good place. All these things I'm gonna talk about, by the way, start in a really good place. All the modern things that we deal with start in a really good place. The faith doctrine came along when people didn't think that God did things in power anymore. They had a form of godliness, but they denied its power. The faith doctrine comes along and what happens is, is God says this incredible thing through Kenneth Hagin, I move, I do things, I do miracles, I answer prayers. Oh my God, really? <laughs> We'd really gotten to the place to where that wasn't, the, that wasn't who God was. So this really cool thing happens and then what do we do with it in our human nature? We twist it, right? And all of a sudden what the faith doctor starts becoming about is, is well, if God answers prayer and if, what I'm supposed to really have what it's really all about is faith, Then I'm just supposed to have faith for everything that I want. Now, right up until I want, we're good. Have faith, believe. But the whole Bible is about the fact that what we want is either A, not good, or B, not best. God has better. The whole Bible is trying to point out to us that these things that God wants for us are infinitely better than we think, so much better that we haven't even thought about them. And that what we have to do is become the kind of people that God can do anything he wants to us so that he can do with us something that later we will thank him for, even if at the moment it seems hard. You see it? So the faith doctrine falls down completely, right? And it's an easy target. Here's another easy target, positive thinking positive thinking gospel, right? Those, those churches that'll tell you, here's the deal. You're a child of God. You're the child of the King. You are, in fact, His beloved. All of that is incredibly true and incredibly important, right? He loves you. A lot of people have a bad tape running in their head about what a scuzzball they are, and this is trying to tell you, put a good tape in there about how much God loves you, how much He cares for you. This is all good, right up until it becomes something. You forget that you're also an alcoholic. See, the thing about AA the thing that I love and also hate about it, and I think we're supposed to love and hate it, is this, I'm, 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 I'm free, I'm delivered, but I'm an alcoholic. Don't forget where I came from. Don't forget who I am. He's not trying to make us feel like a scuzzball, but he is trying to do something with us. He's trying to make us always understand something about ourselves so that we will approach him properly. We will not approach like the demanding child. We will approach like the thankful, oh my God, you saved me. Thank you. And when we remember who we are, we do that. Do you see it? Now, I'm gonna take two harder ones. And right now, I'm about to talk about something that I've only done probably two or three times in all the 20 years I've been here. And I just don't like to do this. But but there's a thing in here that we do not look at to our harm because God tried to teach us something and we haven't learned it. Still to this moment, we haven't learned it. So we need to call something out that happened right here in the Northwest that had national impact on the entire church across the United States. And that is we had two mega churches that were two of the most influential churches in the country go down suddenly. One of them all the way to disappearing, Mars Hill, and one of them a long ways to where it's still there, but it's, not, it's just a shadow of its former self. Now, I wanna make something clear, okay? We are not gossiping about church, we don't do that. What we do here at Lake Sam is we pray for other churches. I do wanna say I am an incredible critic of the church in America, but I do so from the inside as one who loves it deeply and who wants people to grow into the fullness of christ and everything that i'm doing is not to compare myself with others it is to admit what we are as do many other churches god is saying what's wrong with the church to everybody some people are really going after that a lot of people are really working on this and we are in fact changing the church slowly but surely but it's not because we're better it's because we recognize that we're all you know the the, the log that's in my eye is not greater than the speck that's in yours And we're working on the log that's in ours in order to get it right and in order to hopefully find something that others will pick up and that the body of Christ can become more fully, more richly, more discipled in who God wants us to be, right? That's the attitude. Jesus loves his church, even in its failing aspects. He doesn't love that, but he loves his church and he's trying to help her. It is his bride that he is coming back for. And so we are not allowed a kind of judgment. But we are told, aren't you, don't you know that you judge angels? Don't you know that you're supposed to discern these things? Don't you know you're supposed to talk about these things and learn from them? You're just not supposed to do it in a gossipy you're better than them way. Right? There are people in here that have gone to both Mars Hill and that. And you will find my explanation of what they're doing to be somewhat superficial. Or not, no, no, I don't think superficial, but, but, but gloss. Or I don't know how to say it. Quick because I could talk to you in great detail about these things. I know Mars Hill extremely well, inside and out. I know East Lake less so, okay? But I'm gonna talk about things that are, I think God wants us to be talking about because God did a phenomenal thing. Nobody's ever seen what happened to Mars Hill. Tell me another church like that. I'm not saying it's never happened in all of history, and I'm not saying it's never happened in this country, but I'm telling you, it is the primary example of it. Nobody's ever seen a church disappear in a matter of months. A 10,000-person church here with satellites all around the country. It's, It's an unbelievable thing that happened. Why did it happen? We need to learn, right? So this is my best attempt to do something about that in the context of what God's trying to teach us today about fallen human nature. And here's what we always want to remember. The seeds of our destruction are always in what we sow. There's always something wrong, even in Lake Sam. And were God to bring it out, it would ruin us. And there was a seed that was in there that did get to pretty full flower, and it killed it. And in the first instance of it, it has to do with a particular person, Mark, who I still love. I'm glad that he's pastoring. I wish he'd have waited a little longer. But the bottom line is, I think God can still use him and will use him. Okay? And I just hope that he gets the fullness. As he gets older, he will. Because that, God loves him. And God has a way of teaching us and growing us to where we do become useful, right? But the bottom line is, is from the lips of someone who... Mark said this too, I know this to be a fact. I'm not telling you third-hand story, I'm telling you this person told me, this is what Mark said to me. Mark said, I want to become the pastor of America. Now there is a good way of thinking that. I want to become the pastor, you know, there's a way of thinking about that that isn't horrible. But it's a pretty small slice of the pie of what the rest of that means, in fact, was. Which was a pretty big ego. Okay? There was a problem there. And that ego manifested itself on another level as doctrine. There was a lot of doctrine in that church. It's one of the things people loved about it. And it's one of the things they did very well, by the way. You can get it all right, but they got a lot of it right. And they did an enormous job. In fact, here's what Mars Hill was really about in its inception. Not when it got done, but in its inception. Here's what Mars Hill was really about, why it grew so fast in the beginning. Now watch this because there's a thing of flaw in here, but there's also a thing of great in here. Here's what it was about. A strong man stood up in front of everybody and said to all the young men who were struggling with porn and sexual issues, and he said, stop it, be a man, stand up and quit. Get rid of that crap, knock it off, be a man, stand up. And a lot of young men stood up and it actually does work when you say that. The problem is it only works to a degree. Because here's what the whole of Scripture is trying to tell us. For 2,000 years of the Bible and 1,000 years before that, what God showed was is not one person ever made it. Every person had fallen short of the glory of God. The lesson of the Old Testament, the lesson of you trying to do it yourself is ultimately that you can't. It's not that you can, it's that you can't. It's that you need a savior. That's what Jesus is. He's the one that comes and saves us from ourselves. As hard as we try, as much as we might be prone to succeeding and having all kinds of victory, there is still this other thing in us that is broken and needs salvation. And when you preach an MMA-type gospel, you don't get there. You get to a place that has to do with you, and you can begin to treat people poorly, as happened to the staffs. You you begin to treat people, and you begin to think of people in a very different sense, and you begin to think of all kinds of things in a very different sense. Now watch, just one more layer of this, and then I'm done with this one. And I want to get out of it as quick as I can, but I just want you to see something. The membership class was actively promoted there as this. You probably shouldn't go through it because you probably can't make it. That's not a fair estimation. Let me put it this way. Our membership is not for everybody. Do you know how attractional that is to most people? Woody Allen had a great joke about it. I would never belong to a club that would have me as a member. When you tell people that you're not good enough for something, they try and be good enough for it. And guess what? That helps them be better. And if it was all about just becoming better, then that's a pretty good track to take. Because it makes you better if you're not perfect. Right? But it's not about trying to get better. It's about trying to understand who you really are. And then finding the Savior who really makes you something entirely different than you could ever have become in your own self. That's the message of the gospel. That is not what was being communicated there. And a thing of human nature was being manipulated in order to cause to rise up this movement. But think about it. In the heart of it, there was a human nature, a brokenness in human nature that was being appealed to and was appealed to in a way that became its own fall. Now, Eastlake, same issue, but from an entirely different level, entirely different place. I love Ryan. To this day, I love Ryan. Anybody who knows Ryan loves Ryan. Ryan is a humble guy. He is not the kind of guy that would say, I want to be America's pastor. He would think the exact opposite. Anybody that wanted to be that, there's something wrong with you. He's just a guy who's just saying, I'm just trying to do the right thing in the right way, and I'm trying to get this right. It, it, Ryan is a really, really lovely man, and that church was doing a really great job. But I want you to see, at the very beginning, their branding was this, church for the rest of us. Now, here's the good way to interpret those words. Pretty simple. The church had become dead-stayed, formulaic, liturgical, whatever, but it wasn't relevant to young people wasn't talking about what we cared about. It wasn't talking the way that we cared about it. It wasn't giving us the things that are in our lives that were helping us. It was some out of date. It was an archaic thing. It was out of time. And he was right. It, ha- it was that. And to his enormous credit, one of the reasons why they're so enormously helpful is he really did cut a new path of how to be relevant in people's lives. That was the good stuff. And it was good stuff. Really good stuff. But church from the rest of us is also one of those things that human nature can take and twist. Because what it ultimately became was something like this. And this wasn't really Ryan, this was really more the church, but it was we're cooler than you. We're hipper. We have keggers at our church. And that makes us better than you. You see it? Do you see it? It's, there's a, there's a, it's playing on, again, a thing in human nature that takes you and says, We admit, see, they weren't saying that we were super Christians and super apostles and super MMAs and all that. They were saying the exact opposite. But in the end, it still became a thing that was about, and it didn't become a thing that was about needing a Savior because we're free to do whatever. Watch this. This has been said about, about theology and people because there's always two things that are in a kind of tension that needs to be resolved, and there's only one way to resolve it. If your church, if your Christianity becomes about doctrine, doctrinaire, over people, then you become legalistic. Then you become formulaic. You don't treat people with the unique, created, special identity that is God. When you put doctrine over people, you do the opposite of what God does with us. Because God, grace is all about putting people above doctrine, that's the very definition of it. Think about it. But the other error that we can make is we can put people over doctrine. And when you do that, then you become licentious, which is a, which is a fancy term for meaning do whatever's right in your own eyes. Whatever you're doing, just, just you know, Do your best to get it right, but just go ahead and do whatever you're doing. Here's the point. We don't get to put doctrine over people and we don't get to put people over doctrine. We don't get to do either one of those. We have to live our lives in the fullness of theology and in the fullness of love. That's what God does, right? But you see, we have this human nature in us that's always pulling us one way or the other to where we get out of balance. And when we get out of balance, things go bad. And it wasn't that the thing that started it was bad. What's bad about it is how we take it and what we do with it. You see it? So we always have to do something here. We always have to be both incredibly humble, but understand our unique calling and the specialness of it. We have to be two things at once at all times, or you can't be who you are. And the church can't be who it is unless it holds to both of these things. Now watch what Paul does with this. Watch this. Okay. Look, he's saying, now watch, this is, this is Paul talking about people. That's not the half of it because he's been talking about, he's been saying, look, what these guys are bragging about is how well they speak and how, what they've done in terms of being able to form large crowds and all of this kind of stuff. They're bragging about all of this worldly crap. And Paul says, let me tell you what I brag about. I brag about the fact that I've been shipwrecked several times, that I've been beaten and left for dead several times, that I've been imprisoned several times, that I have been, that I have been, that I have been. He brags about all the tough things that have happened to him, but then he says, in addition to all of that, that's not even the half of it. Here's what really bugs me more than all of that. When you throw in the daily pressures and anxieties of all the churches, when someone gets to the end of their rope, I feel the desperation in my bones. When someone's duped into sin, an angry fire burns in my gut. You're going to have to help me again. I'm going to get distracted again. Help me. Can we do that? We'll talk after church. Okay. But, but when someone is duped into sin, here's the point. They're wonderful. I love. But anyway, I'm going to get myself into a hole here. Okay, look, when someone's duped into sin, an angry fire burns in my gut. Now, watch. I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. Now, we're to doctrine. See it? He just talked about his priority of people, but now he's saying, here's what they're boasting in. They're boasting in all of this stuff that they they do, in that they are charismatic, A type, attractional personalities. Here's what I'm going to boast in, Paul says. And I hate to boast about it. He is so apologetic about his boasting. He keeps saying, the the boasting that I'm making, I don't want to make, but these people are boasting about something that is the wrong way to boast, and it's playing into your human nature, and I need to put a relief to it. So he says, let me tell you about the things that if I was going to boast to you, here's what I would actually boast about. Both my sufferings and my care for you, but ultimately this. And this actually makes Paul a unique person in the whole of human history. To my knowledge, there's not any other single person there's ever had happen to them what Paul had happen to him here. And in fact, it's the reason why Paul knows what he knows. The reason why Paul can bring the Old Testament to the New Testament and connect him in the incredible life giving way that he does is because, in my opinion, of this. And what happened was I was caught up to paradise, he calls it third heaven. It's not important what third heaven is. It's probably, just to explain it, it's probably there's the heaven of the sky where the birds are. There's the heaven where the stars are. And then there's heaven, paradise, the spiritual heaven. I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding, listen, that they cannot be expressed in words. I would think God would take you to the third heaven, to paradise, to tell you things to tell other people. But here's what he did instead. He showed him things that for the rest of his life, Paul had a prism through which to see everything that happens, always. And everything that happened, Paul could draw the faintest distinction between bone and marrow. He could draw the faintest distinction between this and that because he had seen the fullness thereof and he knew everything that was even a degree off. And that's who he is in life. That's who he is in the Bible, which Peter says, It's hard to understand Paul, but the things that he says are God-breathed. They come right from the throne. You see it? I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding, you cannot. no human is even allowed to tell them, and then now watch what he does. Now, you tell me if you're God, because we've been talking about how we don't really know Paul, but now I wanna say, do you really know God? Because watch this. Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so as to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. God gave somebody a messenger from Satan to torment? Is that God? Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Okay, here's how we are. See, the intellectual people in here go, what was that thorn in the flesh? Was it his glaucoma? What is it, did he stutter? Did he, you know, what was it? Can can I just tell you, it doesn't matter what it was. It might have literally been a messenger from Satan poking him. We don't know and it doesn't matter. What matters is this. God gave him something that was so surpassing that he knew that it would kill Paul unless he was brought low. Do you see it? He didn't put a thorn in his flesh to hurt him. Or to, you know, I did something really good for you, so now I'm gonna do something really sucky for you. He gave him something that was absolutely surpassing. And he said, I need somebody to have this. Now watch this. And they gave it to the vessel that could handle it. And even then, I'm gonna need to do one more thing. Just to keep you to where this beautiful thing I've done for you, doesn't become twisted as human nature does and end up hurting you and other people. Do you see it? I mean, there's a wow in here. And so Paul gets to a place where he says this, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. His adversaries were boasting in their greatness. He says, I'm boasting in my weaknesses, in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, the troubles that I suffer for Christ. But you know what? Right here, I want to make a parallel for you right here. I want to, who's the most important person in all of the Old Testament? You could argue Abraham, but if it wasn't Abraham, who would it be? Moses. Here's a thing Moses. That was good. God. <laughs> Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on earth. That is in the Bible. God, right at the very beginning, was trying to show us something about the people that he can use. You really, 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 really got to be genuinely humble. Moses is the kind of guy that when God said, Get out of my face, I'll make a great nation of you. I'm going to go judge them. Everybody else would have said, A great nation of me. Hmm. And then we said, Well, maybe not, but by that time, God was past us killing all those people. Moses is the one who immediately said, I'm no different than them. If you're going to kill them, take me first. That's Moses. But watch, it doesn't just stop with Moses. How about David? David was anointed king and then got chased around by a madman for over a decade, about 17 years, and had that guy's life in his hand. This crazy man who was trying to kill him for nothing, and he'd been anointed king. He, had his hand. he, he was so justified if he had just went with the sword and killed him. It been, nobody would have given him a hard time at all. But David was so humble that he refused to take it that way. He'd been anointed and then spent years running and hiding because he'd been anointed. (laughs) How about this one, John? John goes to the Son of Thunder, call down fire. (laughs) That's John, bold John. And John is so transformed by Jesus that he never even uses his own name in his gospel. Did you know that? Instead, the way he refers to himself is the one whom Jesus loved. Isn't that cool? But he won't even use his own name so as not to exalt himself. How about this one? Peter. Peter was pretty bold. Peter was arguably a type. Peter was pretty, you know, right? Peter had a lot of, right? But Peter also has this thing in his life where three times he denied Christ, which Christ forgave but which humbled him. Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, begged to lead the persecution of Christians and literally had to get knocked down because of it. Literally knocked down. (laughs) Watch this for a second, Just, just hang in there. This is a little hard, but you'll get it, it's short. In Paul's day, when he was alive, God did not let Paul become the object of worship by making him weak and not a very good speaker. So that the people who came to Christ through Paul worshiped Christ and not Paul. You can get in the way. Now, 2,000 years later, we read Paul, and we don't see meek and bad of speech. We see... Off-putting. Nothing I want to hang with. So if we come to Jesus closer because of Paul, here's the one thing we don't do. We don't make Paul the object of our affections because he's pretty off-putting. And so even now, for thousands of years, can you imagine God has let Paul be misunderstood precisely so that Paul could be the fullness of what God intended through him which was somebody who pointed people to Jesus successfully, beautifully. See it? Sorry. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I love the camps and I love that their babies are in here. And help us to figure out the right way to do that. This has got me now. It's bothering me the other way. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, I love that couple. And just help us get that right. I just didn't mean to embarrass them like I think I just did. And I apologize and I repent. And help me get it right. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's who Paul is. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. This is Paul saying, it's just always, all the things of God are just always upside down from what we think they are. When I'm weak, I'm strong. And in fact, here's what he says. He must increase. This is John the Baptist. When they're saying, John, you had a bunch of followers. What's up with that? Now they're all going to Jesus. Aren't you feeling bad about that? Oh, no. He must increase. I must decrease. And I think about that all the time this way. I think about the fact that ever, however full of myself I am, which varies by day, right? However full of myself I am, God can only take the remaining parts. So I've got to empty myself. Which, by the way, is what all these guys did. And that's a pretty good list of guys right there. List of people, don't you think? Moses, David, John, Peter, Paul. who else? In fact, let's be clear, even Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So what's the point of all this? What are we trying to say? Who is Paul? I don't think he's actually any of these things. I think we think he's these things because of his letters and because of how we read them and all that kind of stuff. But I think when we really come to understand who Paul is and the thing that God would actually have us to know about Paul, that really comes out of these verses that he was doing right here, this is who I think Paul is. Humble. In the word picture, I think that's the thing that's supposed to stand out the most. Paul is phenomenally humble. Great. I got it. We're supposed to be humble. Does anybody in here have a way to make yourself humble? I haven't found one. And lots of people have been praying that I would. (laughs) How do you make yourself humble? Honest to goodness, how do you make yourself humble? How do you do that? Yeah, God does it. God humbles you, God can humble you good. You've been humbled, I've been humbled. Okay, I walk with a limp, no question. But let me just tell you, it turns out you can't become humble. Isn't that what we've been saying the whole time? The things that it is that God wants to make you, you can't become. And yes, he will give you trials and all that kind of stuff, but it turns out that there is a little key that Paul shows us remarkably that actually makes you humble, but not, not humble to the point that you become toast inactive. Here's what we're supposed to think of ourselves as. a servant. Now, that's not a good enough word. I know it's a loaded term. Paul tells us specifically, you're a child of God. You know that, right? Now, so that you don't get too puffy about that, While you're here, think of yourself as a slave. You are here to do his will and that's it. Nothing's more humbling than that. Even a servant can be, excuse me, but this is a loaded term too, but I I won't even say it. But a, a servant can be rebellious. A slave, A willing slave, a bond slave, the one who, remember what the slave's about? It's about the person that says, not that you've enslaved me and I'm resisting you, that the bond slave is the one that says, you're a good master, and I want to come under you. And so I go, and this is where earrings come from, by the way, and I come and I put myself on a doorpost, and you hammer a thing through there, and you put something in my thing, and what I've said is, is I choose to be your slave. I choose to serve you. I choose to let you tell me what to do and when to do it and how to do it and what to be and how to be it and how to be it and every. I choose this. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, you have a congregation before you right now which you have brought to a place to where we desire to be your servants. More than your servants, we desire and we are willing to choose, willingly to choose to be your slaves. We understand that it's a thing that humbles us We understand that it's the thing that gets us right. We understand that it has to be you and nothing else. We don't want this because we're in America and we're free, darn it. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, we give our freedom right back to you and what we say to you, we take the crown from our head and we cast it to you and we say, God, my life is better when I am in service to whatever you want me to do when you have led me, you have shown me, you have directed me, when you do through me what you want, when I am your willing instrument for whatever you have, that's the moment when I am the most fulfilled, when I am evidencing the most of who you made me to be, when I am most your child doing the will of the Father. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm asking you to seal this in us. In fact, we reach down in front of ourselves and we pick up these two cups. And in one of these cups is the bread, the lower one. And what we recognize is is that having been independent, having been free, having added you to my life but not come necessarily a 1,000% under you, I'm broken. I've broken my life by choosing my own way. So I put my finger in there to to let it resonate in my heart that I'm the one that broke it. And I lift it up now just as I lift my eyes up to see Jesus on the cross, who takes all of those decisions and all of those consequences, and who in Jesus' holy and precious name, in Jesus' holy and precious name, heals me and makes me whole. Thank you, Jesus. And now I lift up this cup in which is the life that you have given me. The life that you have for me. I don't necessarily ride in that lane all the time. But boy, when I do, I see how much better it is in the lane I drive in. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name I'm asking you God this life that you have for me that I have nothing to do but simply enter into it's already all been done. I take this life and I say make it mine. Make that life that you have my life. If you're here and you don't know the Lord I hope you took that cup. If you didn't feel free to now. Let Jesus become the Lord of your life. It is magnificent. And you'll see things you can't even begin to imagine. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if ushers could come forward.